and high profile from Winnipeg taking a traditional Ukrainian kolomeka, a very ubiquitous one, and uh, putting a multicultural twist on it with a Latin American arrangement. High profile from Winnipeg with Oitaduna. Dobrý den, šanovni radio sluchači, ta vitaju vas vsih na radio predaču naš holos radio krizkoho korenja na hveli CHLY 101.7 FM u misti na najmo. Pre mikrofonici hodenu je Pavlina, a pisicoho Oksano bude z vame nastupni pifodene. Hello there and welcome to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio coming to you on CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. I'm Paulette demchuk mccory Bukarinska Pavlina, and I'll be your host for this first hour and Oksana will be along at 12 noon to host the rest of the show in Ukrainian. In this hour, a mix of spoken word and music. In the first half, Ukrainian Jewish heritage and a book review of an unusual character from the 19th, from 19th century Ukraine. As well, an interview with Andriy Telozhenko, a Ukrainian diplomat in Kiev, and not actually the whole conversation. It was a long, very lengthy conversation. And just wanted to get a handle uh, on what's going on uh, over there. We're seeing a lot on the news, uh, but this is a look behind the scenes with somebody who is there working with government for the Ukrainian people rather than outside interests. You've got troops amassing on the eastern border as well, the north and south, courtesy their neighbor to the east, and uh, some saber rattling going on uh, coming from the west, and in the middle are the Ukrainian people just trying to live a peaceful and prosperous life. So uh, he'll give us a little bit of insight on that uh, in his full interview, which will be available on Patreon. But uh, today we'll get a little bit of recent history, political history, bringing us up to the present. So stay tuned for all of that. We've also got our usual proverb of the week, other items of interest, and great Ukrainian music. And up next, another Canadian multicultural musical extravaganza, Ray St. Germain, a very popular Métis singer and a song that turns out to be quite popular with the First Nations and Métis communities, especially from the Canadian prairies. Here is Ray St. Germain with Conchita Kowalski. I'll never forget her name Though long ago Conchita Kowalski How did you get that name? Was your daddy from Poplar Field Up in Canada way? Ay, 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 ay She makes the pierogies too hot You can't make pierogies in a chili pot 
She likes to polka But in a flamenco way Katita Kowalski I'll never forget her name Ay, 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 ay Chikai, chikai Ay, 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 ay Chikai, chikai Like the foxtrot But that's what I did When she fed me her chili pot I played accordion She played the tambourine Conchita Kowalski I'll never forget her name
From Edmonton, the Euphoria Band from their CD they recorded a couple of years ago now, and uh, Volodymyr Ivasuk classic uh, with a little bit of uh, Benny King contribution to their arrangement of this song called Yapiduv Dalaki Hore, translates as Into the Hills, and that sounds sometimes with what's going on in the world these days like not a bad place to be. Again, the Euphoria Band with Yapiduv de la Quijore. We're going to pick up the pace a little bit now, actually quite a bit. So lace up your dancing boots and get ready to do some line dancing. Uh, here is Anton Mukarski from Ukraine, channeling a little bit of Alan Jackson with Chapilke. 
was millennia from Edmonton from their third CD called Bratia Brothers and uh, that song was all about godparents Kume and now Ukrainian Jewish heritage on Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio discovering unknown and untold stories from the past and present of Ukraine's rich Jewish heritage In this edition of Ukrainian Jewish Heritage, we will be discussing Jill Kuliner's biographical account, A Contrary Journey. A Contrary Journey is the story of Jill Kuliner's search for the forgotten Jewish poet and troubadour, Valville Sbarzer. Kuliner's fascination with Valville leads her to travel across Europe and Turkey to learn more about his life. The story she narrates is a unique combination of poetry, Jewish history, mystery, romance, and travelogue. She describes Valville's travels in 19th century Europe and her own travels to find traces of his journey and her own history. Her passion for this project is reflected in the very first words of the book. I fell in love with Valville's Barzer. 130 years after his death. Velvel was born in 1826 in Zbaraj, Galicia. As a young adult, he became known for his sarcastic but beautiful Hebrew and Yiddish poetry. However, he was considered heretical by the conservative Jewish community of Galicia and left for Romania in 1845. He spent 25 years traveling, writing poetry, singing, and living a life of excess. Late in life, he married Malkale, and together they moved to Constantinople, where he died in 1883. Kuliner's own life is also full of wanderlust. As a teenager, she was a rebel. With a liberating disregard for rules, I planned to meet malcontents, iconoclasts, people who did not fit in, those who had escaped familial, social, and religious pressure, and I dreamt of faraway places. At 17, she left home to begin her life's journey, which led her to travel much of Europe by foot. She relished sleeping in open fields or crumbling castles, 
and experiencing life in unsavory places. She longed for the authenticity of 19th century Europe and criticized the onslaught of commercial noise, mass entertainment, bling, cement, and polyvinyl chloride, which characterizes modern-day life. After discovering the beauty of Velvel's poetry, Kuliner decides that she wants to explore his life experience. She admires him as a 19th-century iconoclast in the Eastern European Jewish community who rejected the status quo and sought freedom of thought and movement. Her travels take her to places where the Jewish community thrived in 19th-century Europe. Her descriptions are vivid as she visits old pubs, crumbling houses, and locations of former community and religious centers. She describes crowded conditions, prejudice, poverty, but also community, creativity, and joy among 19th century Jewish inhabitants. As she looks for places where Velvel lived and created his poetry, Kuliner explains her interpretations of history in Ukraine, Romania, Austria, and Turkey. There are descriptions of Polish, Lithuanian, Austro-Hungarian, and Russian influences on Jewish communities in Galicia and eastern Ukraine. As she rides on buses and trains, she meets other Jewish travelers trying to find their roots. She travels to locations where Velvel lived, including Zbarash, Botosani, Lviv, Vienna, and Constantinople. Readers start to get a sense of the poet, his life, and his importance to Hebrew and Yiddish folk literature. We do know that he was an admired folk poet with a wonderful voice, that his songs were filled with love for his fellow man, that warm and generous, he could also be unruly, difficult, moody, and uncouth. However, his poetry was luminous. Tell me, O wind, you hover over the world. Where can a poor man find a resting place, a home? Kuliner labels herself as a social critical artist, and her commentary on various aspects of the past, the present, and current events is at times harsh. She describes life in Velvel's village of Zbarash as Wives were beaten by their husbands, children were beaten, animals were beaten, bloody street fights were common. She has great love for Ukraine's old train stations and bars, but is very critical of more modern buildings. This brand new construction belongs to a wealthy modern consumer, and like any respectable castle, possesses a fake crenellated room, two concrete towers, fake old stonework, and an iron gate. Although the poet Velvel plays a critical role, this book also reflects Kuliner's ideas about Eastern European history, 19th century Jewish community life, anti-Semitism, and present-day realities. Everyone with their own interpretation of history, everyone with a tale of misery. Jill Kuliner was born in New York, but raised in Toronto. She left home at age 17 
to travel through Europe, Turkey, and the Sahara. During her travels, she worked as a radio announcer, office worker, translator, fortune teller, and actress. In more recent times, she has worked as a writer, social critical artist, and photographer. Her photographic exhibition about World Wars I and II was sponsored by the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs and UNESCO. Her nonfiction book, Finding Home in the Footsteps of Jewish Fusquiers, won the Joseph and Faye Tannenbaum Prize for Canadian Jewish History. She has also written two mystery novels, Death by Slanderous Tongue and Sad Summer in Biarritz. She lives in France in a former auberge, which has been classified as a museum. A Contrary Journey is available at Chapters Indigo and Amazon. I'm Myra Janik in Toronto for Nash Hollis, Ukrainian Roots Radio. Until next time, Shalom. Join us again soon for another episode of Ukrainian Jewish Heritage here on Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio. Слухаєте наш голос Радіо Українського коріння, котре подається вам на хвилі CHLY 101.7 FM у місті Нанайму. І з вами Оксана і Павліна. You're listening to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio on CHLY 101.7 FM in beautiful downtown Nanaimo with your hosts Oksana and me, Pavlina. Andriy Telezhenko is a Ukrainian diplomat who served as foreign policy advisor to the Prosecutor General of Ukraine and senior policy advisor to the first Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine. He joins me via Skype from his home in Kiev. Andriy, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Hello. Uh, thank you for having me on. It's a great honor. Great well, I was following you on Twitter also for some time. So. Well, and I, and I found you on Twitter too, and I'm so honored to have you on the show. So... Tell me a little bit about yourself, how you came to your career as a diplomat. My dad used to work in the Ukraine embassy in Canada in the oh. 90s. I grew up in Canada and Ottawa oh. from 1995 till 2000 and lived in Egypt for two years. Again, the embassy, uh, my dad used to work there in the Ukraine embassy in Cairo. Then went to Washington in 2007, went to university in Washington, University of District of Columbia, studied journalism and trash relations, then moved to Canada for a couple of years to Ottawa University, studied global affairs there, moved back to Washington, finished to my school in Washington uh, for political science and national relations. And in 2010, came back to Ukraine, feeling that I have to do something for my country with the knowledge I got living abroad in Canada and the United States. And I started basically working with the Batkishina Party, which is the Yuri Tymoshenko Party. At that time, it was the opposition to Yanukovych. I think it was 2011. That's when uh, I started to work with them, advising them on international relations. Basically, my life was connected with international relations, and I started working in the sphere. I worked with Senator McCain parallel to that. That's how he helped me get into the U.S. political system. And parallel with helping Ukraine and political party, uh, which was fighting with the Yanukovych uh, government at, at that time, and then uh, went to advise a couple of members of parliament in Ukraine on international relations. And then the revolution started. Maidan, 
Mm-hmm. which uh, I was working on all the international relations issues on Maidan, connected with Senator McCain's visit to Kiev. I was the one who basically got him invited to come to Kiev originally and handled his security. And also Chris Murphy, the senator from Connecticut, was there, who 10 years later accused me of basically being a Russian spy. And even though I handled his security on Maidan, and uh, after Maidan, I became the advisor to the first, the senior advisor to the first deputy prime minister of Ukraine, and then moved with uh, Yerema. He was the first deputy prime minister of Ukraine, Vitaly Yerema, and then he moved to become the prosecutor general of Ukraine. And I moved with him to be his senior policy advisor and foreign relations in the prosecutor general's office, where I worked until 2015, almost a year. And uh, then I was offered to work with Ambassador Chelly in Washington, the diplomat. And I took that position. It basically, was a lower position from what I had before, but because of my knowledge of the United States, mm-hmm. I was offered a job and I was doing work which was higher above my third secretary in the embassy position. And uh, that's how I basically became a diplomat, worked officially for six months that position, resigned on my own, even though some media, liberal media, says that I was fired. I resigned on my own due oh. to not supporting the idea of Ukraine's involvement and working with one political party, Hillary Clinton at that time, in the U.S. elections of 2016. And uh, I came back to Kiev, tried to push this idea off record to the president of Ukraine, Poroshenko, at that time, and his people to stop this nonsense because we're going to get in trouble. And Ukraine did get in trouble mm-hmm. after Trump became president, not because Trump became president or not because Trump wanted Ukraine to get in trouble, but Washington changed and they knew what Ukraine was doing. And it came up one way or another in the press. And uh, then I went public with this because I wanted to stop it. But it got worse for everybody. And it, it got it went viral portion because they didn't want to fire the ambassador. And uh, who worked there, Charlie, just to, uh, if he would change, if Poroshenko would change the ambassador at that time, I think Ukraine would have no issues with the United States under Trump or anybody else. And this story would just be forgotten. But unfortunately, everybody stood on their side, supported what they wanted to support. And uh, that's how we came to where we are today, where Ukraine, we went through all these issues with Ukraine. And I would then work with Rudy Giuliani on fighting the truth here in Ukraine, assisted him in some of his work on digging up information of what really happened here with Biden and his son. Was there corruption? Was there not corruption? That's what we wanted to get to investigate it properly by the U.S. Uh, law enforcement and Ukrainian law enforcement. But it never happened. There was no political will to do it because everybody was afraid for the Democrats and the liberal media and that they're going to destroy them. And uh, so basically that investigation led to nowhere. And after Trump, basically last week of presidency, I got sanctioned by the U.S. government for being a Russian operative trying to influence U.S. elections, even though I was fighting for the truth and uh, to dig up corruption and uh, materials which really happened in Ukraine under Biden administration and to have them investigated. And they, that's how the U.S. blocked me from going to the United States. And this is where I am today, <laughs> fighting for the truth, continuing, not giving up. Well, uh, same, uh, same here. And uh, it's hard to find, I'll tell you. It's buried and shrouded in partisan politics, and that's hardly to the benefit of Ukraine, Ukrainian people, peace and prosperity, and sovereignty in Ukraine. Now, you were working with Yulia Tymoshenko, right, to uh, oppose the Yanukovych government? Yes, I was, I was uh, advising Tymoshenko, her party, before she went to prison in 2011, and when she was in prison in 2012. And that's when also Canada gave a lot of help 
right. to Ukraine when the Canadian doctors came to see Tymoshenko and also involved in having them in Ukraine. This was 2012, and we met with the Canadian ambassador at the time in Ukraine, Mr. Troy Wolashnik, which was very helpful to us, and this was under Harper. Right. And going back to Harper and going back to the Conservative Party, I know Mr. Andrew Shear, and we were in contact with his office oh. some time ago when he was the leader of the, of the party, and then with uh, Tony Clement mm. and uh, mm. a member of Parliament, Cassie Wagenthal, and uh, also a member of Parliament from Manitoba. He was very supportive. I forgot his name now. And under the Harper government, Ukraine got a lot more support. And it was the first government, actually, Canadian government, who actually offered not blankets or anything to Ukraine, like uh, medical equipment, but actually uh, weapons and protective gear, things right. that we can use for protecting our soldiers, uh, anti-radio systems or anti-aircraft right. systems, small ones that our, our soldiers can use, which was a big step for mm-hmm. Ukraine. So mm-hmm. I really thank the Harper government. I, I know what exactly, not because of political support for the Conservative Party, but what was done under his government to Ukraine, even though Washington was against it. So it was really, it was still under Obama at that time. So it was really big support for Ukraine throughout that whole period of time. Yeah, that was very, very odd because uh, it was Obama that went to, after Ukraine gave up its nukes in 1994, he said, well, let's get rid of your conventional weapons. So really not a whole lot of surprise there. Now, I think you were referring to uh, Member of Parliament James Bazan uh, in Manitoba. And yeah, I, yeah, yeah, and I, I, I had the good. I remember there was this big to do about um, sending lethal weapons for defense, and um, I remember there was an uproar in the uh, Ukrainian Canadian community uh, and American, and actually the entire diaspora um, about these um, this equipment that Canada had just sitting around, and uh, why wouldn't Canada send these lethal uh, weapons to Ukraine for defense because they were so needed. And so I had him on uh, once and asked him, why isn't Canada sending this weaponry to Ukraine since they need it? And he explained to me that uh, basically it was was worn out. It was um, not useful. It would have been an embarrassment to Canada, actually, uh, to send it. Yeah, basically what today, uh, what the U.S. is sending us, it's old equipment which was used by Afghanistan or in Iraq, or it's a war in the U.S., which is like 40 years old, and it's useless within a modern warfare. And even though it's costing Ukraine a lot of money, which has been given to us through the U.S. aid system, hundreds of millions of dollars, and to get that aid, we are giving away our sovereignty by doing all these reforms in Ukraine, court system reforms, law enforcement reforms, which are destroying our system, basically, because Ukraine is now or the government has fallen apart as it is. We were a weak government throughout the, in the last 30 years, not because of Zelensky only, but also because there was this struggle with, with all these reforms, but with average foreigners advising, each one telling new ideas which don't, don't work in our country. That's a different story. But basically, we're getting all these old equipment from the U.S. When we were in contact with Senator McCain in 2014, that's when the ideas of Chavez came up, when I was in contact with him and my boss, Mr. Yarema, and we thought about what Ukraine could get from the U.S. Like, really could get. And we came up with javelins because at that time we didn't have any equipment to use. And, and we didn't get it until Trump became president. This is javelins? At that time we already did not need that equipment. But that's still, that was basically what we wanted. And I can tell you a story, mm-hmm. which uh, I said on one of the media posts I, I go to here in Ukraine and also in the West. But 
basically when we wanted to buy military drones from Israel in 2014, the, the Ukrainian government had the money to buy them and uh, to use against uh, any foreign military that was going to go against our territory or in Donbass. But that, that equipment was U.S.-made, and we already had a final deal, but Obama personally, his administration, and Susan Wright, blocked that transaction, and we did not get that. It's only because it's U.S.-made, and Obama administration didn't want to get us any equipment to Ukraine even though we wanted to buy it from our own money. So basically, this is an example. A lot of people don't know this. Nobody covers this. But this is the steps, what, what was going on behind the pictures uh, at that time. Nobody, We could not talk about it at that time because it was secret. Now we can. And unfortunately, still, people don't understand the difference between the government and even in the United States and Canada when what was going on at that time and what was going on in Ukraine. Well, that's kind of maybe a, a good reason not to meddle too much in, in other <laughs> other countries' operations and, and things like this, pressures to reform. I've, I've often wondered about the motives behind all this pressure on Ukraine to, you know, to do these reforms. Yeah, basically, I was, I was involved in a lot of, I mean, from, from day one, basically from ground zero, how this reform started, because it started from when we were in the, in the, in the um, cabinet of ministers, overseeing all the law enforcement, we were pressured by the U.S. to start these reforms, and we thought it was a good idea at, at, at that time. Let's do reforms together with the United States. Somebody's going to help us on the side, advise us how to do it better. But when we when we started to do those, implement those reforms, and uh, we were being told things to do what was, first of all, illogical, illegal because it was against the law at that time. We had to change the law, but the, the law was never changed, and that's why there's a lot of commotion and a lot of some spheres of law enforcement now. And also to fire people who, who have a good background, but, but just because they were politically involved or worked under some government before, we had to fire all those people which had a lot of knowledge, a lot of experience, and went through the, the whole system, basically 40, 40 years of experience within the system. And everybody were fired. Every, every one of those people were fired just because they were uh, not modern or not pro-Western or not whatever. And but they loved their country. And uh, that. And then we got all these new people around, and all this money was flowing in. But the outcome in a couple of years. Uh, and that was one of the first who was criticizing all these Western reforms in Ukraine. Said, let's do them in a different way. Not, we have to do reforms. Not just, we cannot do even how it was before, but mm-hmm. let's do them in a way, not just have pro-liberal activists involved in these reforms who don't know what they're doing, who are never in the government, or who don't know how the system works, but let's have people from the old system, the new, new guys, uh, and people who are activists, and people who, who are professionals, sit down on one table and come up with an idea that's going to work with the police, with the security system, with the courts, and then we can implement it. And then only it's going to work. It's going to be workable within our system. But they basically just copy-pasted what works in the U.S. or the U.K. or Canada and brought it here without basically uh, <laughs> reforming the reform itself under the Ukrainian needs. And under, because we have a different culture than the, the U.S. And, yeah. uh, and Canada even though we want to be pro-Western, but we have a different culture. It's a bit bit different here. And even we're more different than Poland. We actually, or Russia, 
our, the Russian system would not work in Ukraine also. Mm-hmm. Their, their system, their police system. We were, we were th- th- talking about that through a Polish reform system, which actually is more close to the Ukrainian one. Mm-hmm. And they did not change their law since 1960 for the police reform. Mm-hmm. And they kept it. And they basically just uh, upgraded the whole system mm-hmm. to work under the 21st century needs. Mm-hmm. That's what we actually were trying to get the Americans to do, but we were blocked. I was, oh. I was going to Washington a couple of times when the State Department tried to block my visits and meetings with U.S. senators there saying, I was trying to tell guys, you're, we're spending all your U.S. taxpayers' money on this and our money also, which we don't have a lot, and it's going nowhere to the, and going right into the drain and we have to change it. Let's make it workable in a way that everybody's going to be happy. But we were told it's national security interest of the United States government. We should stop, I should stop, or I would be politically destroyed. That's what the U.S. Embassy officials told me oh. privately a couple of times, even though I still contend that I have a Ukrainian passport. I don't have any other passport. I don't have a Canadian or U.S. passport or British or any European passport or any other country. Or Russian. <laughs> I, or Russia, yeah, especially Russia. And I have to stick up with my own country and I have to work here. I want my children to grow up here in a normal system which is going to be workable. I don't want to carry a handgun every day, yeah. being afraid for my life on the street. We have a war going on in the East, but we want peace in other cities. And this is like, and this is not only the police reform like this, this is everything. Yeah. Uh, court systems, uh, our gas companies, which were profitable 10 years ago, but now they're not profitable, even though the salaries of all, all the heads of the government in Ukraine are over over fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollars per month. Some mm. of them are. Oh. And the regular people, normal people on the streets, like teachers, are getting three hundred dollars a month. Okay. And, that's and, crazy. and they are doing a terrible job, the government. And yeah. they're getting all these good salaries where yeah. we have no money in the budget and the people aren't getting anything else and the West is closing their eyes on this. They're saying, Oh, it's good for corruption, no, there's no corruption because they're getting good salaries. But it's not the whole system was a total disaster. How can this be? And this is what well, what, we, what Ukraine is facing today. Poverty and economical destruction and oh. law enforcement destruction, a, whole, a huge crime rate in Ukraine, all those mafia and uh, people uh, from uh, all over Soviet Union and Eastern Europe are making deals in Kiev and nobody's talking. Oh. You cannot leave a car right now in Kiev uh, uh, without a special security system because it can be stolen. Oh. That's so bad it Really? In Kiev? Oh, no. Yeah. You know... I had my car stolen once right in front of the police station. Oh, for heaven's sake. So this is how... This is where we got to. And it's still not perfect. Why... Nobody listened to a rational advice on how to make it happen. What I think... I don't want to accuse anybody. But what I think it was to make money on Mm -hmm. one side because a lot of money was flowing in and somebody was making it. On both sides, Ukraine and the U.S. or people involved with the... Western agencies were giving that money, and also for political instability to keep Ukraine more under under the blanket of the Western government, not have it uh, a strong system where it can oppose the West. And basically, now we have to basically go with the flow how Washington tells us, or Ottawa, or London, and don't have our own opinion because everybody's afraid to go have their own opinion, or they're going to go their own system is going to destroy them just because they went against the West. So I'm almost getting the the feeling that uh, Ukraine is kind of caught between 
two sets of foreign entities uh, trying to, you know, remake Ukraine in their own image first, you know, for centuries. And during the Soviet era, it was Moscow and, and Russia. But now it seems like the West is trying to remake uh, Ukraine in its own image, which is ironic and uh, certainly not very helpful, I'm sure. The sun making it into our own image was basically experimenting oh, with different, yeah. different types of reforms. Oh, that's even worse. Make it, to basically make it, try how it works in the post-Soviet country. So what about the big question now, um, NATO? Ukraine was uh, ready to join that in the end of the 90s. And then in, the, in 2008, we almost joined NATO, but because some countries opposed Ukraine from joining NATO, and EU people are just telling this uh, a big idea that Ukraine is going to join EU one day, but nothing's happening. So basically, it's just a, a, it's like a virtual reality or sub story fairy tale, which they tell all the time the Western governments to Ukraine, you're going to be there, but you have to do this. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're, you're yeah. going to be there. But that's how they're going to try to control governments. And yeah. a lot of governments are using this idea that a lot of politicians and political parties are, Ukraine is going to join NATO or EU under us. We're going to be prosperous, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, every one of them is using this idea. And then when they come to power, the West hooks them up on a hook and saying, oh, you have to do this before you join, but yeah. we cannot take you in before. And that. they're using this to basically control the whole system. If, if we had a strong government to say no, look, guys, if you're not going to take us to NATO, you're not going to take us to the EU, we don't want to go there. We're going to develop our own government. We're going to be prosperous. And then we're going to think if we want to go there or not. That would be a logical step yeah. to do. Of course, sovereign like For example, even right now, within the negotiations of Russia and the United States, and Russia gave a letter that they would not want NATO to go f- further, uh, but Ukraine could say in this whole story, NATO does not like and basically calm everybody down and be a player again, not have U.S. or Russia decide our fate, yeah. but have, have us decide our own fate with an understanding that nobody's taking us into NATO. Everybody's told us, you're not welcome there for the next 30, 40 years, et cetera, et cetera. They told us from Blinken, Newland, Salzenberg, the head of NATO, et cetera, et cetera, everybody in the West told us. And we're going to say, look, within this negotiation, Ukraine comes out, says, we don't want to go into NATO. We're going to calm everybody down. We're a player in this. We want our own narrative to be looked into. So Ukraine officially states we're not joining NATO. We're going to be neutral, like Finland yeah. or Austria or uh-huh. Switzerland. Right. We're going to be neutral. We're going to build our own army. Uh-huh. But for this to happen, we want from the West because we really want to join NATO. But to calm everybody down for the sake of peace, we want we, we won't. But we want from the West. We have a lot of IMF loans. Let's at least talk about negotiating to half of them or to you're going to write off for our own sake. This is going to be helpful for our our development. Because we want to join NATO, but for the sake of peace, we won't. So we write off some of our IMF loans. That's what we tell to the West, to Russia, and to the like, to the United States. But to Russia and to the European Union, we say, look, because you don't want us also joining NATO, and for the sake, but what we really want to, but for the sake of peace, you have to compensate us. We have a gas pipeline, which is we used to be a monopoly before, before Nord Stream two and right. South Stream, right. which goes under. Nobody talks about the South. To, which goes through Turkey, we, we want to still be a player. You invest with EU and Russia, invest into our gas pipeline to us to modernize it, to have more gas go through Ukraine. You're going to pay us more money for the transit, right. uh, but you invest in our gas pipeline. And for the sake of peace, we want this to happen. This is what our compensation is. At least this would be a step for everybody to say, oh, look, 
maybe nobody would listen, but I think they will because this is an important thing that everybody's been fighting for. And uh, we, this would be a step for Ukraine to show we are a player. But nobody, everybody, our government is afraid to say this because they're going to get a call from the U.S. Embassy in Kiev and say, oh, no, 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 you cannot do this. <laughs> and that's, what, that's the biggest problem. Our government listens to what the U.S. Embassy in Kiev tells them. Yeah. Before there was the president of the United States had to call or the vice president or, or somebody from the West and the higher up to say, oh, no, no, no. But now, it's not, now the, the U.S. Embassy in Kiev writing on Twitter, not even giving a call. They're just tweeting, tweeting <laughs> oh, about it. And, and the government listens. That's the biggest problem. No sovereignty, no sovereign issues, no uh, sovereign ideas because uh, we government, which is controlled by Western elites, and it's, 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 it's no different from Russia controlling us. Before it was Russia who was controlling Ukraine since it got independent. Now it's Washington. And same story over and over again. We're not independent. We're not sovereign. Yeah. Somebody's still controlling us. So it has to stop. I'm speaking with Andrei Telozhenko, a Ukrainian diplomat in Kiev with Canadian roots. This is part of a lengthy conversation we had last week, which you can hear in its entirety on our Patreon site. And as well, I'll bring you another, a little bit more in a future episode of Nasholos Ukrainian Roots Radio. Nahadu you vislochite radio programu Nash Holos Radio Nashoho Korinya, Nakvali CHLY, Stoideni CMFM, Umistin Naimo. Tsuhodenu Bulas Vame Pavina, Zaras Perdeu Microfono Oksani. Alla Peritemio Hochu Zalashitavas to Kimislavame Mudroste. Krashes Ludmev Shodi Jete, Chemvorehil Subiro Bete. And our proverb of the week translates as It is better to live in harmony with people than to make enemies. You're listening to Nash Holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. I'm Pavlina, and my time with you is up. Oksana will be here at the top of the hour to host the rest of the show. But first, a few important messages after this one last polka.
Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.